0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. So, as typical, we are going to talk briefly about the Culinary Medicine Program. As you saw, there was a wonderful breakfast this morning made of uh, ancient grains and with some very natural strawberry rhubarb compote with it, a little sweetener next to it. So, I hope you took advantage of that and of the education that came with that. Along with the Culinary Medicine Program, we uh, provide education, and then we ask some questions about that the following week. So last week, the, the uh, story was, name two ways what well, was about food choices. And so this was, and, and uh, local foods, and decrease food in the environment. So it was, name two ways your food choices can reduce our carbon footprint. This week, it was on menu planning or advanced planning, or advanced directives. (laughs) And so the themes do match the idea of the Medical Grand Rounds, and the team spends a lot of time sort of thinking about how they come together. But last week was, name two ways your food choices can reduce our carbon footprint. That was the quiz for last week's. And Adam Strauss got it this time. We picked from among many winners who had the right answer. It was eat lower on the food chain and eat local foods. And speaking of local foods, we have local farm fresh eggs from Lebanon chickens. All right, thank you very much. It was a wonderful breakfast today. Just before we get started uh, today uh, with Sandy Burstein's talk and his introduction, today is actually a very special day. We have had and been privileged to have three Rwandan uh, uh, physicians with us who are at the University of Rwanda in their third or fourth year of training as physicians and have come to us uh, to spend two months. Right now at the same time Steve Benson along with Zilla Hussain and a number of other folks are down in Rwanda where our guests are going back to. And it's just been a delightful exchange and we're going to continue this exchange with our program in global health not only uh, within the Department of Medicine, but for Dartmouth writ large. Today, sadly, is their last day here. Sad for me because I've gotten to know John and Vincent and Barnaby, and it's just been a real pleasure to have them be guests within our department. So as you are leaving, I have for each of you a certificate of your participation for the last two months in our department and a Dartmouth pennant. So, John, could you come up? John Batonzi did work in Medicine and uh, Neurology. And he will go back and I know he'll take with him the work that he learned in neurology. John. (laughs) Vincent Sugira has worked with us in medicine and critical care. And I know again, he'll take back all of the knowledge and things that you've learned with us uh, to your country and we look forward to continuing to work with you. Thank you so much, thank you. And Barnaby Habimana spent time in internal medicine and in gastroenterology and hepatology where he focused on hepatitis C. Just so delighted to have you with us during this time. And now, without further ado, we will uh, bring to the podium Uh, Tim Leahy, who will introduce today's speaker, Sandy Burstein. Tim, as you know, is an associate professor of medicine in our division of infectious disease and international health. He's also an adjunct uh, assistant professor in the anthropology department where he teaches at Dartmouth College. He is the uh, director of our clinical ethics uh, program here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. He's been on the bioethics committee and directed that. And he's starting a new committee saying you should have ethics. I'm just teasing. So, Tim, come tell us about today's speaker.
1: It's true. That was a, It's a simple message, but it's true. You, you people, you should be ethical. <laughs> um, you know, uh, many of us know that in healthcare we do a bad job representing our patients' wishes, particularly at the end of life, and it's something I think we all feel some distress about. Um, Um, uh, fixing that problem and yet how to do so is really difficult for us and so we're left in this state of tension and today we're lucky to have a champion of local efforts to make a difference in that space. Sandy Burstein is a um, family practitioner uh, uh, born and bred in the Dartmouth system uh, in our family practice residency the main Dartmouth program and uh, has quickly taken on a number of leadership roles in the Dartmouth system and in New Hampshire as a nursing home director and a hospice director and as the medical director at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, Manchester, and along the way has gathered a number of accolades as a teacher and as a leader, and he's made a difference around the state. I won't belabor the number of uh, advisory and leadership committees that he's uh, contributed to. But I thought instead it might be more meaningful to say that Sandy's the kind of um, pragmatic connecting A to B to C to get the job done um, that, he, uh, that he accomplishes not only as a closure, closer, but also as a, a decent human being who's truly a joy to work with now that I've had the pleasure to do so. And I have no doubt that the team that he's assembled and really wisely led is going to make a difference in the lives of all of us, our patients and us. And, and for that, I thank you, and I'm really excited to, to hear what you have to say today.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, can you hear me OK? In the back? Great. OK. So um, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak here at Grand Rounds. I'm honored by that. Um, I've, I've talked to some of you in the past about this. So um, some of this may be a repeat. Uh, Rich tells me that it's OK. Repetition is good. But that I should engage you, engage, make sure I've engaged the audience. So. Um, I, I will try to uh, bring some harmony and clarity to the chaos that exists in this space. And um, I do that with something that I have knowledge and skill and passion for. And so um, I hope that it will make a difference for you. And to start off my, uh, my talk, I'm going to turn to an advisor, someone who starts my day off every day. Um, someone who doesn't always lend clarity to things, but who always adds joy to my life. That's Earl Pickles. Earl Pickles, I don't know if you've ever seen the Pickles comic strip. Earl and his wife, Opal, and grandson Nelson family uh, start my day off every morning in the, in the Nashville Telegraph. So, so Earl and his wife are having a conversation, and Opal says, did you know that the DNA of humans and chimpanzees are 96% the same? Yes, I do know that. I don't believe it, though. You know it, but you don't believe it? Absolutely, I don't believe everything I know. (laughs) So what I'm going to talk to you about today is things that you know already. And I hope by the end that you will believe it. In fact, um, the objective for today, by the end of this presentation, the participants will believe more of what they already know. (laughs) I tried to pull it off, but Rich wouldn't accept it. So our, (laughs) our objectives are to discuss the value of advanced care planning over a simple completion of an advanced directive, understand the evidence showing benefits of advanced care planning on patient care, including improved quality and decreased costs, appreciate that advanced care planning is only as good as a system of care to promote and improve the process, and then to support the efforts of honoring care decisions by managing up the program and or by participating. I brought with me today Susan Fitzgibbons. Susan, raise your hand. She's our program manager. And if you're meant to meet with her, say hello to her at the end. Otherwise, uh, say hello to me. Uh, we we, we want to talk to you about this more. So first I'm going to start off with a quiz. What do you understand about all this? So most people die as a result of, one, sudden death from an acute medical event, sudden death from a traumatic event, or chronic progressive illness. How many say one, two, Three? You're also smart. So, yes, of course, chronic progressive illness. It's predictable. It's like you could see it coming. And uh, where and how we die? What percentage of people would rather die at home surrounded by loved ones? (coughs) A, 10 percent. B, 25 percent. C, 50 percent. D, 80 percent. Okay. You're so smart. Yes. And then what percentage of people actually occur, deaths occur in a medical institution? A, 10%, B, 20%, C, 50%, D, 80%. Exactly, very good. And what percentage of hospitalized patients in New Hampshire have an advanced directive available? A, 12%, B, 37%, C, 52%, and D, 82%. So it turns out that in New Hampshire, so last month, a survey was done of all hospitals uh, uh, the month before National Health Care Decisions Day, and 37% of patients in a hospital had an advanced directive. Now, here at DHMC, it was 50%, so we did, we did a little bit better. And then what percentage of people are incapable of making decisions on their own behalf at the end of life? A, 10%. B, 25%, C, 50%, and D, 80%. So it's actually, it's a little bit more than 50% uh, lose their ability to make decisions on their own behalf, which is significant. And then everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go to a boring medical grand lounge lecture, (laughs) take call, or die, which is A, (laughs) B, C, It's all of the above, of course. (laughs) However, only one of them, regretfully, is a prerequisite for going to heaven. It's not going to a boring medical grand rounds or taking call. It's dying. It's the only prerequisite. So here, um, for the first study I'd like to quote is from The Onion. (laughs) Uh, A study that hasn't been replicated yet, but I suspect it's a... The world death rate holds steady at 100. <laughs> world Health Organization officials expressed disappointment at the group's finding that despite enormous efforts of doctors, rescue workers, and other medical professionals worldwide, the global death rate remains constant at 100%. Death a metabolic affliction causing total shutdown of all life functions has long been considered humanity's number one health concern. For 100, responsible for 100% of all recorded fatalities worldwide, the condition has no cure. Quote, I was really hoping that with all those new radiology treatments, rescue helicopters, aerobics, TV shows, and what have you, that we might at least make a dent in it this year, who director Dr. Gernstblatt said. Unfortunately, it would appear that the death rate remains constant in total, at, as it has been inviolably since the, the dawn of time. Many are suggesting that the high mortality rate represents a massive failure on the part of the planet's healthcare care workers. <laughs> So this is what I'm going to talk about today. Ethics and decision making, advanced care directives, advanced directives in advanced care planning, essential but not sufficient. Why plan, some evidence, you like to see evidence for this. The elements of an effective system, and then a little bit about honoring care decisions. A good plan for a good plan. So ethics and decision making. So decision making with the Patient Self-Determination Act of 1991, the patient's right to make their own decisions was reaffirmed by Congress to accept or to refuse treatment or to prepare an advanced directive regarding future health care. So we like to think of decision-making as something that we do well here at Dartmouth. We have the first Center for Shared Decision-Making here. But I'd, I'd like to say that On the old days, shared decision-making was the doctor would share the decision with the patient. But with the advent of consumerism, patients come in and often share the decision with the doctor. So there's no real shared decision-making going on. And then, Maya, although it's not the case with everybody here, I'm sure, many times what I've observed is that um, doctors decide what's best for the patient and give informed consent. Um, this is what we should. We, what I think we should do. This is the benefit, and this is the risk, and what do you want to do? And that's not shared decision-making either. Shared decision-making, as you know, is bringing the patient's expertise, what matters most to them in life, together with the information that we could give them regarding the risk and benefit, and trying to make sure that what we can offer matches what matters most to them. So that's true shared decision-making. And uh, we use these ethical values to help guide that, that approach. But even with these guides, you know, not harming people, letting people make their choices, doing it to benefit them, and doing it fairly, there can be um, ethical dilemmas. You know, how much information uh, we share with people, the kind of information um, are, it can be challenged, and it's more complicated uh, when, pa- when dealing with patients who lose their ability to make decisions. So I had a a social worker in our practice come to me not long ago with a dilemma she faced. She knows that it's doctors and nurse practitioners that have to discern uh, decision-making capacity, but she was dealing with a family whose uh, parent uh, was having dementia. So she sent a message to one of the primary care doctors and said, Doctor, would you render an opinion on whether this person has decision-making capacity? And the doctor responded, well, I've only seen the patient once, and so let's get a consult from a geriatric psychiatrist if the pa- to see if the patient has confidence. So the first thing I did was pull out my own advance directive because I thought I'd have a heart attack. <laughs> does anyone see, want to offer any, one of the three things that I saw wrong with that statement? sure as heck don't need a geriatric psychiatrist. What was that? sure as heck don't need a you, don't, you, you don't need... Yeah, you don't need a geriatric, you don't need a geriatric psychiatrist to determine capacity, to determine capacity. and a geriatric uh, psychiatrist does not determine competence. Only a judge in a court of law determines competence. And the third thing is that every time you see a patient, you you need to determine decision making capacity. And if you don't, then you're committing assault. You know, patients need to you need to get informed consent and hopefully shared decision making every time you see a patient. So we should all be capable of doing that. So the best decisions are made when patients understand the risks and benefits of their choices. They can appreciate the consequences as it applies to them. They can use logic and reason in sifting through that information and they can consistently communicate a clear choice. If you can say that, then they have decision-making. And most of the people we see have that capacity. But you need to determine every time you see a patient. And so short of that, we have to go to an alternative. And hopefully, that's a legally named agent who is available, willing, and able to honor the decisions that were communicated directly to the agent by the patient and documented such. Next best is a legally named agent who knows enough about the patient to decide what the patient would choose. Next is that agent choosing what they believe to be in the best interest of the patient and now lacking that, we have a law in New Hampshire, the surrogacy law. So the state, of, if you have not named someone to speak on your behalf, the state of New Hampshire has decided for you who that will be. And if some of you have noticed that our that the, the advanced directive note section no longer allows you to name somebody just from a note, that's because that is not considered legal enough and it would be uh, superseded by New Hampshire law. So your spouse or your child or your parent or your sibling in that order would be the one chosen to speak on your behalf. So we don't want to, if, and if that's not your choice, uh, then you better, uh, After this is over, you better fill out your advance directive. And so I'll add to this list of ethical values, integrity, um, that that we need to do what we say we're going to do. And so there is a disconnect between what we say and what we do. And once again, most people would rather die at home surrounded by loved ones, but most deaths occur in a medical institution. And most people want to talk to their doctor about end-of-life care, but very few do. And we have a policy here at DHMC. Healthcare providers at DH Lebanon have a duty to facilitate advanced care planning and to encourage patients and employees to think about values and choices (coughs) for medical care, including but not limited to end-of-life care. But we have only about 50% of our patients at any one time in the hospital have an advance directive, which is actually much better than the state or the national average. Now I'd like to say that just having an advance directive does not guarantee that person's wishes will be honored at the end of life. Um, I can't tell you how many times, as I'm I'm a geriatrician, and I work in nursing homes, how many times I'll look at an advance directive and call the nephew who is named in Connecticut, and he has no idea that he was named the, direct, the, the, advanced, the power of attorney. He wants nothing to do with it. Or the family member doesn't know what's wanted, and they struggle with the decisions. And I'm sure you've had similar experiences here. So the completion of advanced directive does not guarantee anything. So uh, advanced directives and advanced care planning is essential but not sufficient. So just completing a statutory advanced directive does not work. The prevalence is low even at the end of life they're often unavailable oh yes my attorney habit it's locked in a safe i can't remember what it says or they may be vague or not followed or just over you know ignored i'm sure you have experiences with this so we say that advanced directives are only as good as the process of advanced care planning so, so i'm a planner so I, uh, planning, you know, I, I knew I was going to come here today, so uh, I got up a little extra early because I didn't know what the traffic was going to be like, and I knew it would take me you know, an hour and a half, two hours to get here. Um, so I expected that to happen. I didn't expect that uh, it would be, um, it would rain outside, but I brought an umbrella just in case. So I planned for the expected, and I planned for the unexpected. So advanced care planning is planning in advance for your future health care. If a sudden or une- unexpected event like a car accident or illness or an expected complication of your known chronic illness left you unable to communicate and make your own health care decisions and others would need to make those decisions for you. You know, in the live free or die state, it's a way of giving control to people who want to maintain control. And live free or die state. Does anyone know who said live free or die? <laughs> you know, there was,
0: there was a recent controversy in the
2: news about it. Oh, really? Well, there
0: was because the, uh, was it Perry? I forget, one of the candidates who came through. No, oh, it was, uh, anyway, one of the candidates who came through misspoke about
2: who. Oh, I see. That, that, oh, I see, yes.
0: The news OK, yes. And they said it was from the founding fathers. It really wasn't. It actually
2: came from France. It may have been, but what we quote is, jo- is General John Stark. Yes. General John Stark, Revolutionary War hero for the Battle of Bennington, said live free or die in a speech that he wrote when he was being honored in 1809. So he is the one that we're quoting. He may have been quoting somebody else, but the rest of the story is live free or die, death is not the worst of evils. That is the full quote. So,
0: in yesterday's Valley News, I think it was a letter to the editor has the clarification of who hmm. in France said it about his son. I see. Said that, and that quote was at the end of it. Now borrowed
2: from... I'll have to look that up to add to my, uh, my little trivia thing. So that's great. Thank you. So the desired outcome of advanced care planning is to know and honor a patient's informed plans, creating an effective planning process, selecting a well-prepared agent, Um, creating specific instructions uh, for expected scenarios, making them available, and making sure that we incorporate them into medical decisions. And And we don't really currently evaluate that process. So we say that advanced care planning, as good as it is, is only as good as a system that supports, promotes, studies, and improves that process. So, evidence for good planning. Um, some of you may have heard of the experience of the Gunderson Health System in La Crosse, Wisconsin. A uh, a county uh, of about a couple hundred thousand people, La Crosse has about 60,000 people on the upper Mississippi River where there's two competing hospitals and multiple uh, EMTs and nursing homes. And back in 1991, 15% of people had an advanced directive. And uh, within five or six years, they, they were dealing with ethical dilemmas right and left with people on dialysis who had strokes, who the family members didn't know what they wanted. and So they said, let's, this, let's change this. So everybody put down their competitive war chest and got together and created a system that's now called Respecting Choices. And uh, at this point, uh, and they've published, and I'll share some of those studies, their experience in a system of advanced care planning. Patients want to be informed on a receptive to advanced care planning. Ninety-six percent of people have an advanced directive that are readily available. And they do chart audits and they show that 99.5% of their patients' wishes are honored based on their advanced directives at the end of life. And there are improvements in population health metrics. So if they could do this, others can do it. And they've been they have a nonprofit that and they've been sharing their experience in system building and training in advanced care planning conversations in healthcare organizations around the world. And we've contracted with them to help us with this program. So they say that it's not one kind of conversation. So this is a trajectory of f- function in life, and as many of you know, um, it's all downhill after th- age 30. Uh, the geriatricians in here know that there's a steady decline in. And uh, pulmonary function and cardiac output and visual acuity and, and uh, our homeostenosis sort of takes over. And so um, and along the way, you get ill and you recover and you bounce back, but you're never quite where you were before. And so we say that for healthy adults, we should create a power of attorney for health care and ask them to think about the unexpected um, and making sure they pick an agent that knows and will honor their wishes. So we call that a first steps conversation. And then for people who are seeking treatment for a chronic illness, uh, and they have defined six kinds of, of uh, conversations that result in a statement of treatment preference for heart failure, COPD, end-stage renal disease, progressive neurologic disorders, cancer or dementia, that it's a conversation that's specialized It that helps people explore their goals of care Should they have what they consider to be a bad outcome. This is not unlike what our palliative care folks do all the time. And then finally, our last steps, or the creation of a POLST, which is a specific order for life-sustaining treatment for people who fit the surprise question. You wouldn't be surprised if they might die in the next year. You don't necessarily expect it, but you wouldn't be surprised. So that is another type of conversation. Using the same general principles that we use for motivational interviewing, shared decision-making, palliative care, but they've created training so that it's standardized. So you can train, you certainly wouldn't, you, you could train volunteers in first steps conversations. You'd, cre- you, you'd train specialized uh, uh, healthcare workers for next steps or, uh, or, or for last steps. So this is a, a picture of the New Hampshire Advanced Care Planning Guide uh, and, the New Ham- and the Vermont Advanced Directive for Healthcare. Vermont has a long form and a short form. The short form is eight pages. They're coming up with another one that's going to be two pages. Um, and then this is a picture of the New Hampshire pulsed form, the Provider Order for Life Sustaining Treatment, with sections that are more specific than the portable DNR. So there are sections for what uh, people choose do not resuscitate. It doesn't necessarily mean they don't want to go to the hospital or even go to the, in the intensive care unit. Um, I've had a patient who uh, had a portable DNR but had a pulse that said that she wanted full treatment. She, was, um, she had a progressive uh, neuromuscular disorder in her 50s. She had a pneumonia. We became very ill. She had decided that if her heart and breathing had stopped, she wouldn't want to be resuscitated, but she wanted things done up until that point. So she presented to the hospital um, and the intensive care unit, and the pulmonary uh, intensivist saw her X-ray, saw her diagnosis, saw the portable DNR, and said, she's going to die. And then he saw the pulse and said, wait, she's not going to die. I'm going to treat her. So that it's not all about helping people die. It's helping people achieve what matters most to them. So the pulse is a more specific order that EMTs can act on, that nurses in nursing homes, calling covering doctors, can act on. So it's very helpful for a last-steps conversation. And it's got different colors and names in different states. In Vermont, it's called the Colst. In Massachusetts, it's the Molst. And in, uh, in uh, Louisiana, it's La Poste. So they have all sorts of, it's the same general paradigm. And this is sort of how it's been um, rolled out across the country. So this is a, a study from La Crosse, uh, two studies. The La Crosse Advanced Director Study And they looked at people who died in La Crosse County over a nine to 12 month period, different periods of time in each of these studies. They ran out of money, so they had to shorten it. So they looked at 459 people in 1995, 96 who died, and 85% of them had an advanced directive. This isn't a place where five years before they had 15%. Um, 95% of the time it was found in the record, and 98% of the time the treatment decisions were consistent with instructions. 10 years later, it was sustained. Um, and, in fact, it improved. And to this day, it's now 96%. This is another study done in a heart failure clinic uh, by a large health system uh, where they looked at, uh, they had 1,894 patients in a heart failure clinic, and they were offered a next steps type of conversation. Um, And 31% uh, chose to have that conversation. And then at the time of death, 94% 94% of patients uh, had the advanced directive in their medical record versus 25% in the control group. 56% died in ho- under hospice versus 37% in the control group. And the length of stay was almost double in the, in the next steps group. So, very significant. This is a, a study talking about the impact of advanced care planning on end of life care in elderly patients, particularly on their family members. So, it's done in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, they picked, uh, they, it was a uh, randomized control stu- study. They uh, got a control group receiving the local standard of care, and the intervention group had an advanced care planning conversation with a certified facilitator. And the, it, it had an impact on the, well, anyway, there was an observable difference between the overall satisfaction of care between the two groups. Um, sad the intervention group, this is overall satisfaction with care at the hospital, was 93% in the intervention group and 80- 65% in the control group. But then when it came to those, in those studies that died, a similar n- number died between the intervention control group, 29 versus 27, similar age, similar uh, sex distribution, 25 of the patients had advanced had completed an advanced care planning conversation and directive versus none in the control group. Their wishes were known and followed in those 25 versus eight in the control group. Um, and then the, the, the real significant thing was the impact on the family. They had an impact of event score. They looked at the family members months out, and there was a, there was a higher symptoms of distress and depression amongst family members who are not involved in the conversation. And I think that's really significant because no matter what you choose for somebody, whether you choose to do everything, something or nothing, if you don't know what they wanted, you will feel distress. You're sad when someone dies, but you don't want that distress. So this is really a gift. So there's a game, uh, there's a card game that we promote every year on National Healthcare Decisions Day called My Gift of Grace. It's a conversation starter game. Um, and because of uh, this being a week within National Healthcare Decisions Day, which was last week, um, it's on sale right now. Uh, 20% off, it's, it's normally $25. It's $20 called My Gift of Grace. You can get it on Amazon. And as a conversation starter, it's, it's a way to get the conversation going about living and dying. So here's, this is not what I show to all audiences because the purpose of the work in Respect Choices was not to save money, but it was just one of those unintended consequences that the cost of care in the last two years of life, and this is from the Dartmouth Atlas, is less in, uh, in Gunderson Health System compared to the national average or here at Dartmouth Hitchcock. So there's... there's uh, is more than a $30,000 difference in the last two years of life compared to the national average. That's a lot of money. And then the hospital care intensity in the last two years of life is less. Now, we can't say this all due to someone having an advanced care planning conversation. There's a whole system that's tied into palliative care, the whole culture. If you were to go to La Crosse and stop someone on on the street and ask them if they have an advanced directive, they will. And it may not have been completed, through their healthcare system. It might have been at a church group or a rotary. There's a whole culture that promotes conversations. And they even has, they've even looking at CPR attempts at Gunnardeson Health System. And they've seen the number of CPR attempts reduced, um, and then the likelihood of survive discharge, uh, alive discharge. Now there may be other things that have impacted on this, but they've been looking at that as well. And this is a they, uh, they put out this return on investment for doing respect and choices work, and this repeats some of that work. Reduces unwanted hospitalizations, costs of care, hospital intensity in the last two years of life, inpatient days in the last two years of life, hospital deaths, uh, number of people seeing ten or more doctors in the last six months, months of life, ICU stays. I mean, it, it's it's significant. Something is happening, different in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and it's being replicated elsewhere. Every week I see something. This came out, I saw this yesterday, I thought I'd stick it in. This was from the Public Library of Science, um, and they looked at the the barriers that doctors have in having end-of-life conversations, particularly when it comes to diversity. And they, uh, so I'll, I'll just throw this out, that there's a lot of things for academic pursuit when it comes to how to make this better. And so they, they said it's vital to identify strategies to mitigate barriers doctors encounter when, con- when conducting end-of-life conversations with serious ill patients and their families when considering diversity. <clears throat> so the elements of an effective system. So oftentimes, you know, we're obligated to ask when they come to the hospital, you know, do you have a, an advanced directive? So uh, they just people on it. Is it covered? I'll, I'll take it. So... Uh, <laughs> But that's, we, we think that's not the way to do this. So we, we describe the process. Now, once again, for those of you in palliative care, this is what you do every day. It's a process of understanding, reflection, and discussion. What do you understand about your role as a healthcare care proxy for your mother? Um, what... What do you understand about your condition and its complications? What else do you need to know? If you're a social worker asking these questions, let's write that down for your doctor so we can specify, we can make sure we get the answer to that. Reflection What have your experiences been with being in the hospital in the last six months? What have your experiences been with a loved one dying in the hospital? What was that like for you? What did you learn from that experience? What would you want to replicate for yourself, and what would you want to do differently? So, learning from experience. And then, what matters for you at the end of life? What, what does it mean to live well? And how can, how can we create a plan that helps maximize what matters most to you? And then, every decision along the way what do you understand about CPR, the benefits of it? Will that help you achieve what matters most to you? Um, there's a story that I heard Bud Hamas tell. He's the, uh, the, the director of Honoring, uh, of uh, Respecting Choices, about a woman who uh, was in her 30s who had metastatic breast cancer, and she was seeking uh, treatment for breast cancer. She had two young children, and when asked what her goal was, she wanted to live as long as possible. And then, so, as you know, it's not just the answer, you dig deeper. Well, tell me more about that. Well, she has two young children. She wants to see her children as long as possible. So what else matters to you? well, I, I really want to spend the time with them, so I don't want to be drugged and unconscious. I want to be awake, so I, I'm okay with experiencing pain because I want to be with them. Uh, so she had gotten to the point where she was under chemo and was, her ex- existence was basically home to, their, to the infusion center and back. She was getting weaker and weaker. And then so they dug people, well, what else matters to you? And then she thought, she thought, I want to take my kids to Disney World. You want to take your kids to Disney World, why do you want to do that? Well, I promised them that I would take them to Disney World. So it became clear that her current plan was not going to help her satisfy getting her and her kids to Disney World. So with that knowledge and some negotiation, they modified the treatment plan, still to treat her, but to pull back a little bit so she can get her strength. So she was able to achieve it, and clearly with her disease she wasn't going to live a lot longer regardless. So the benefits are improvements in physical symptoms of depression, belief that doctors understand your preferences, better preparation for death, lessening burden on loved ones, and really what I have observed is that when you have these conversations with people that have danced around it before, they realize that you're listening and it opens up communication. we say advanced care planning is only as good as that system that promotes and improves the process. So at La Crosse, they, they put it into four design elements. And I'll tell you that when you want to change something we say, oh we got to educate the nurses. We have to Education is important but it's never sufficient. You need a plan. You need a, a workflow. If it's not some part of someone's job description, it's not going to happen. And it helps have incentives as well. So education, a workflow and incentive. so they say you need a good document you need a way to store it retrieve it and you need a team that's going to develop a workflow as to who's going to do what and then you'd like to standardize the way we do the conversations for first steps next steps last steps um, and we and they have developed some training and competency-based certification that we have trained volunteers on how to have these conversations Um, And although many of us are skilled at this already, knowing that it's done in a standardized way helps us better understand when it works and it doesn't work so we can improve the process. Community engagement, patient education materials. I'll tell you, I've talked to rotaries and nursing homes and community groups, and people are really interested in this. They're more engaged than some healthcare providers when I've talked to them because we're all busy. So uh, we need strategies, and we're working in our, with the partners for community wellness, and I have a plan in the fall to work with the United Valley Interfaith Project to do this in our communities. And then finally, and most importantly, I feel, is understanding what works, <laughs> starting really small, developing workflows, learning from when it doesn't work, because there's no experience that's wasted. Um, Testing a workflow that doesn't work is knowledge on what not to do. So quality improvement is essential to this. So the, the, the quality improvement they put into five promises. I'll initiate the conversation, I'll provide assistance with advanced care planning, we'll make sure the plans are clear, we'll maintain and retrieve them, and we'll follow them. And so we have um, honoring care decisions. Our mission is to promote and improve advanced care planning at Dartmouth-Hitchcock in our communities, and our vision is that our pa- with our patients, their loved ones, and our communities, we will build a system to support meaningful conversations about what matters most in life for a time when patients are unable to speak for themselves. So we have uh, pilots. Uh, we've identified pilots for first steps and some in last steps. Uh, and we're looking for interested parties for next steps. Uh, and we have uh, currently, uh, six small teams that, uh, with one or two doctors and a nurse and a secretary and trained facilitators, they've decided to, we've decided to have them target over six months 100 patients, give or take. Um, and then we're going to find out, did they actually come up with a workflow to actually ask them, and to, to refer them? And, uh, and then did they say yes? And did they come back for a conversation with their loved one? And then what was the quality of that conversation? And did it ultimately result in advanced directive? And so um, the work is is really slow, and it's tedious. We're learning what doesn't work. And at the end of, we're, we're nearing the end of six months, and we're starting to find out what does work. And our plan is to, in the next six months, take what's starting to work well and scale it up so if it's working well with Dr. Dion, the nurse and the secretary, can she invite two other people? Does it say stable? And can she replicate it with Dr. Cassio next to her? Or maybe Dr. Dickinson uh, down the road? Um, and then we're going to be testing it in other parts. So we, we're testing it in primary care. We're actually doing this in the orthopedic clinic for patients who are coming in for joint replacement surgery. We have plans to scale this up uh, to uh, to do a second wave with Partners for Community Wellness, uh, with Live Well, Work Well. We'll be talking to Bob McClellan uh, yeah. later today about that, and in, and some other sites. I actually had an opportunity to work with uh, Geisel students during the Health Society and Professions uh, class. Uh, I had eight students, and my my test was, was it my, my project, this is a, a month-long project with fourth-year students where they get to work on a project of my choice. So I, I wanted to see, was it feasible to train them to be first, first Steps Advanced Care Planning Facilitators, and could they develop a workflow that would insert students into the process to be a resource? And then could they measure? And these, they were so great to work with. I can't tell you. They were just fabulous. Um, everything I asked them to do, they did. Uh, you know, it's so different than being the medical director of a group practice. <laughs> <laughs> so they, this is all. These are their slides. They looked at the current workflow, and then they developed a workflow where they would get referrals every day for the next two weeks, and uh, from the office of care management, and then they would, you know, they developed the workflow for. For meeting with a patient and their family member and completing it. And this is their data. They had 35 referrals. They actually saw 22 of the patients. Um, they end up having eight advanced directives completed based on 11 conversations. Now, those are not big numbers, but they learned that this work is tedious and that they made some suggestions on improving this. And we're going to be working with the Office of Care Management on a process uh, for, for, for uh, for having referrals to certified advanced care planning facilitators. And I'd love to explore, with anyone who has any, any power over the real state of medical education, how we can incorporate some of this in earlier medical education. So it's possible to study and improve workflows to promote good advanced care planning. It's not complicated, it's just tedious. Uh, we've assumed things. We sent 60 letters to patients, inviting them to a conversation, and no one responded. And people felt really dejected about that. And I said, hey, 100% of the time you send them a letter, no one responds. <laughs> so that was a perfect score. So we, know, we had to change that process. And then everybody we, that participates in this is very engaged, very interested. And we realized that every planning needs a communication plan for all the stakeholders. This is part of that communication plan. Um, we need a data collection as part of the workflow. We stumbled on how we collect the data. Uh, we need to understand uh, resource, what will it take if we decide to double up or triple uh, what we're going to do. How many more resources do we need to make that happen, meaning training facilitators? So this, uh, this May, we're going to have a share of the experience between first and second waves. In June, we'll train more facilitators, and we'll train instructors. Uh, we'll train eight instructors each of whom, and then again, we'll do that again in the fall so that we can, within a couple of years, have hundreds of people trained in a First Steps conversation, volunteers as well, um, and that my vision is that uh, in every primary care practice uh, a couple of years from now, doctors will be able to refer one or two people a week to a resource who can have a conversation for First Steps or refer once, at least once a month, someone for a pulsed conversation to a resource that's available. I'm pursuing with Lori Key and others how we can do death chart audits, mortality reviews. Did people have an advanced directive, and did we follow it? And if not, I would consider that a medical error, but not as punitive, but really to understand what went wrong, how can we make this better, learn from experience. Um, and then we are also, we have a small work group working on improving. It's hard to tell who the who the decision maker is, so we're working on a process for identifying who that decision-maker is and making it easy for people to determine decision-making capacity and make that in order. So we have engaged people from of care, geriatrics, informatics, ethics committee, and it's been great working with those team members. So once again this is our mission and vision and this is our sort of goals. Develop stronger relationships and communication with our patients, their loved ones, and our communities Facilitate meaningful conversations about what matters most in life to patients and their loved ones. Help patients make informed decisions about their future health care based on their own goals and values. Assist them in development of clear plans for care for time when they're unable to speak for themselves, including end of life. Build a system for maintaining, retrieving, and following our patients' advanced care plans in order to honor their choices and by continuously improving the process of advanced care planning to reflect the changing environment of health and health care experienced by our patients and our communities. So we call it a good plan for a good plan. Have a plan, follow the plan, and demonstrate that you followed your plan. And as my father always said, you, it's not what you know, it's what you do. So now you know it. Hopefully you believe it. Now I want you to do it. So discussing. This is what I said was my goals. By now, you should be able to discuss the value of advanced care planning over single, simple completion of advanced directive. You should understand the evidence showing the benefits of advanced care planning. You should appreciate that advanced care planning is only as good as the system to promote it. And hopefully, you will support, manage up, and, and be willing to participate. So I'm happy to talk about this all day. <laughs> Yes. Uh, Santa, that was really very nice. You, you talked a lot about getting these done, but you didn't talk quite so much about where to keep them. So should these be kept, for example, in the cloud with a link to them so that you can access them from anywhere? Or should they be on your, in your wallet, on your card? Because keeping a different advance directive in every different hospital in the state is actually possible. Yeah. So the question, for, if anyone's watching from distance, is where do we keep these? Where do we store and retrieve them? And there's a lot of uh, discussion about that. Right now, what we recommend, Uh, is part of the plan of the advanced care planning is that people uh, make a copy for themselves, for their agent, for their doctor, and their hospital, and they write down where they've sent that. There is no centralized place in New Hampshire, as there is in Vermont. Of course, it's only available 8 to 5 in Vermont. Um, In West Virginia, they have a registry. The New Hampshire legislator voted, uh, made a law that established a pulse registry, even though there's no law in New Hampshire about pulse, and no money to do anything with it. Um, there was a senator who was, had a personal experience with end of life with his wife. He became passionate, and he pushed through a law for pulse registry. But the problem with that is that we, we're, we're afraid that the pulse uh, will not be updated. We, we're only counting on the physical copy. So as far as the advanced directive, what we encourage is for people to have their own copy, their agent, their doctor, and we have a place to have it scanned here. In, in, and I've heard Bob, uh, some, some people share with me their own experience trying to have it scanned in here and the problem. So we need to, I want to hear about when things don't go well so we could figure out what, how to make it better. So does that answer your question?
3: Yeah, I'm just curious where, where you think it should be kept? Should
2: uh, well, here there was, a, there was a tab to scan it in. And I would, uh, at Gunderson Lutheran, where they have Epic you can see on their tab if they have a durable power of attorney for health care and whether it's activated right on the top banner. And they have Epic, and it can be done. So we're working on a way to make it easy. We thought we'd go one step further and say decision maker, self, power of attorney, guardian, or surrogate. So you could tell right away. So Bob? So I'm curious, in, in La Crosse, as you know,
3: what percentage of the advanced directives were initiated in the community versus the
2: health system? I don't know. The, uh, the question was, what, what percentage were initiated in the community versus in the health system? I don't know. Now, there is a PA student here in Lebanon who I met recently over at the Aging Resource Center um, who's from La Crosse, Wisconsin. So I said, oh, I've got to meet this person now. So I asked her you know, about what her experience was like. And she goes, oh, yeah, I have an advanced directive. You know, she's in her 20s. I said, well, who did it for you? She goes, oh, it happened at church. So it's happening outside of the healthcare system. Yeah, Uh, da. Uh,
0: Two quick questions. Um, Of the 22 patients who were approached by the medical students, seven declined um, the the conversation with the medical students, um, which I thought was an interesting number. It was fully one-third. Yeah. Do you have any any ideas why they declined?
2: Yeah, well, they did ask about that, and I can't recam- remember all the details, but that's not uncommon for people to say no, but then what we do is we're trying to train our facilitators and strategies to respond so the next time they're approached, it increases the likelihood that they'll say yes. So we explain, you know, tell me what, what your fears and concerns about having this conversation are. And then we, you know, what we try to do is, Frame it in a way that, you know, like, well, you know, in New Hampshire, if you don't choose, um, some, the state has decided for you. So we, and then it opens up the next time we bring it up because we, we're going to do this as a system, it's going to happen regularly. At some point, they're going to say yes. So they did engage in conversations. I just, I don't remember the details on that. Yeah. Uh, Tim? I
1: wonder if you could talk more about um, how you envision building community partnerships so that the, the system. Um, isn 't too much centered around healthcare providers
2: so how do we plan on building community partnerships so it 's not health centered uh, <laughs> so uh, we at goodness and they, they they advise us strongly to get it right in the health system first because if we 're not prepared and the health and the, the community comes to us and we don 't know what they 're talking about, it might you know slow down the momentum so there's strong interest in doing something, so the Partners for Community Wellness really want to do this. They want they in our next training, they want to send ten people to get trained as facilitators. We're going to be testing it in group facilitated models. That they're going to be doing it in communities. We have the uh, the United Valley Interfaith Project. They want to do it in various church groups. So, uh, just lots of word of mouth about, and then I'm connected with. Others around the state that are involved in healthcare decisions. So we are uh, talking it up and looking for willing partners who want to test it with us. So we want to test the process of targeting, inviting, and, and you know what, how successful are those methods, um, so that we could uh, learn from it. So I would rather, if people want to get trained, um, I'd rather I'm going to require that they engage with us on a quality improvement effort. Yes? So, like
3: an H4 type healthcare system has like a huge financial incentive if people voluntarily don't want to have expensive treatment. And the sicker somebody gets, typically the more expensive their treatment gets. So, how do you safeguard against the conflict of interest?
2: So, the, the question if I heard it, I have a little hearing problem, so I couldn't hear it. But you, you, so how do you deal with the conflict of interest that exists, let's say, with a health plan whose incentive is to keep the cost down? And so, what I'd like to think is that we're helping people make their decisions based on their goals and values. And there is, as I said in the beginning, with helping people make decisions, we can't give them a medical education to know the informed. You know, we, what we share with them about the benefits and risk uh, influences that. So there's always that ethical dilemma, um, and so we—it's—it's uh, it's a challenge. I, I'd say that in general. Uh, when when we go through a shared decision-making process, whether it's for hip replacement or whatever treatment, um, some people will choose to do things that we would not choose that are more expensive and invasive, but that's their choice. And our goal is to help them make choices based on their goals and values, even if we don't agree. But on average, on average, when people are given their choices, on average, it tends to be less expensive. That's just one of the unintended consequences. Is that fair to say? So... Ken.
3: Thanks, Sandy, for your work. Um, there's some unique dilemmas in dementia, of course. And just to reiterate what you said with the state of New Hampshire's recent legislation, for those, and, and I think that's a good way to promote this. There's a lot of folks who have a partner, a spouse who has dementia. If you have not specified that that spouse is not going to make decisions for you if you develop medical problems, you might have to go through that process when you are not ca- capable of making that decision. So it's, it's important that. You specify, well, no, I want my daughter or my son because, you know, George is not quite thinking that straight anymore. Uh, so that has to be promoted. I don't think that knowledge is widespread amongst primary care doctors. And of course, there's unique issues with precedent autonomy, uh, which is a whole different topic, but I think this is where we're at right now, but I think the real challenge, I think the challenge from 30 years ago was just getting the DNR concept installed uh, for our more open patients. And now I think the issue of uh, How do you apply one's decisions when you are competent and capable uh, at uh, 65 to when you're 85 and demented? How does that actually apply at that juncture? that precedent autonomy? I think that's that's our challenge for it. Yeah,
2: I I agree. I think decision-making capacity is a a really interesting topic. And uh, that, that little story I gave at the beginning is just... I think a lot of people have a lot of misunderstandings about that that are healthcare providers. So. Yeah.
0: so Sandy, just before I thank you for your presentation, I want to take one more moment yeah. because our guest from Rwanda gave me a thank you note in which they thanked us for the knowledge that we've given them. I want to thank you for what we've learned from you, oh, spending time with us. So thank you very much for having been with us. And Sandy, thank you so much for uh, telling us what we know. <laughs> 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 and and, 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 and